you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1. We're going to finish our time in the genealogy this morning and next week look at the Christmas specifically, hopefully without that. Matthew chapter 1, be patient with me as I read these names to you. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Neshon, and Neshon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abihah, and Abihah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, this morning we come knowing that the only hope that we have for joy in this world is faith. Is faith. It's by not what we can see, but by what you have said. Because, Lord, by what we see, we see problems. We see worries. We see concerns. We see brokenness, pain, devastation, death. We see sin. And all of those compromise our joy. We're tempted to walk around afraid and condemned and ashamed feeling guilty all the time. All of those, the result of sin, the enemies of joy. But Christ has overcome everyone. Christ has conquered all brokenness. Christ has turned our shame on its head by his own righteousness so that we stand before you in purity and righteousness. And because of that, because of that, we can have joy. We live by faith today that one day the only thing our eyes will behold, the only thing that our minds will be consumed with is the joy and contentment and satisfaction of the fullness of your presence. Oh Lord, when we think of that, our only prayer can be, Lord, come quickly. Come quickly. 
Oh, speak to us this morning and increase our faith and by that increase our joy in Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So you would imagine the scene 2,000 years ago up in the hills of Bethlehem. Or what would have been a typical and normal night for a group of shepherds. They're there and they're doing what, what guys do. Gathered around the campfire after a long day of tending the flock. Unable to see and do much in the dark. They, they congregate together and they, they sit there and they chew the fat. This is the equivalent of a first century Jack's round table. You know what I'm saying? All the old guys gathered around, and what are they doing? They're solving all the world's problems, aren't they? And so you can imagine these shepherds, they're sitting there, and they're, they're talking about all the problems that they see. And the problems were substantial. The problems were pervasive. They were ruled by a man by the name of Herod. And he was called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. But in the eyes of these first century Jews, he would have been anything but great. He was half an Edomite, not even truly a Jew. He was in the pocket of the Roman government, and he lived as an incredibly paranoid man. In fact, he would execute any political opponent that might crop up, including, including his own wife and his own sons. Uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, he remarked about Herod once that he said it would be better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of Herod's sons. Because he was a man of such ruthlessness. He, in fact, he was so paranoid that the, the uh, spiritual rulers of Israel was a group of elders that went by the name of the Sanhedrin, a group of, of, of rulers over Israel. And Herod actually was audacious enough to execute the entirety of the Sanhedrin during his reign. And so you have them, and they're not only ruled by Herod, they're occupied by Gentile Rome. They're occupied by these, by these Gentiles who are worshiping all of the pagan gods of the Roman pantheon in defiance of Yahweh as the Lord, who, who ate and indulged themselves in every satisfaction of the flesh. And yet it was to them that they owed this burdensome tax debt that seemed to be impossible for them to pay. So can't you just imagine this group of, of old crusty shepherds sitting around thinking, who in the world wants to bring kids into this world? Who in the world would want to bring a child so that they would live an occupation like this? Who in the world would want to bring and raise a family in a time like, like we're raising a family now? Oh, goodness. Goodness. Palestinian News Network, the PNN, was probably running wild, cover to cover, with all kinds of nonsense that was going on. And so you can imagine, what's the solution that men gathered around a campfire or around a round table at Jack's, what's the typical solution that they have? Look back to the olden days, right? Look back to better times. Remember back when David was the king? Can you imagine what a time that would have been to be alive? No, no Gentiles. We didn't answer to the Gentiles. They answered to us. No, no, nobody pushed us around. We pushed them around. We told them what was up. No one pay, demanded us pay a tax to them. In fact, other nations were paying taxes to us. We were the superpower. We were the day. And you can imagine as they were sitting there and they're chewing the fat and talking these things over around that campfire, 
how their minds would go to that promise that God had made to David so long ago, a thousand years earlier. God told us there would be a throne, a ruler on the throne of David forever, that he would rule over us and that we would be triumphant against all of our enemies and that we would rule over all of the nations. And they're there and they're sitting around that campfire thinking about all the problems in the world, all the brokenness in the world. In fact, they realized that they were in that situation because of the sins of their ancestors. And they were now living in a period of 400 years of silence from God, having heard nothing from heaven in the midst of such despair and brokenness. And then all of a sudden, the heavens opened up and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And there is an angel there with a message. And what's the message of the angel? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Why was it good news? Because they were surrounded by bad news. You can't even understand the message of the angel unless you understand the setting of the shepherds. But there, against the backdrop of all of that brokenness, against the backdrop of all of that frustration, against the backdrop of all of that anxiety, against the backdrop of pervasive unbelief, there, the glory of the Lord shone in the hills of Bethlehem and said, Good news of great joy, the King of David has come. The triumphant kingdom is going to rise up. And the triumphant king is going to rise up because the triumphant king is going to quite literally rise up. See, brothers and sisters, there's a lot of, a lot of concurrence with their society and ours, isn't there? There's a lot of parallels that we can see between the brokenness on that day and the brokenness that we have on this day. And it's in the, to the midst of that kind of brokenness that Matthew chapter 1 interrupts the silence of God. It's in the midst of that kind of brokenness that Matthew 1 is written that we might have peace and having peace, have joy in that peace that allows us to sustain through all of the darkness that we find in this world. It is through that that the glory of the Lord can shine through us and around us and amongst us as the people of God that we can dwell in the presence of the Lord. So last week we, we started looking at, at two reasons that we have for peace. The first reason that we saw last week by looking at the covenant that God made with Abraham is that we are a chosen family. We are a chosen family. And this week we're going to build on that by looking. Remember I told you that in this genealogy there are three names that are meant to stand up. You have Abraham who is the, the one to whom the first covenant is given. And then you have Jesus who is shown as the fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham. And now we have the second which is David. David also, God made a great covenant with David and Jesus is going to be presented to us as the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. And so we see a second reason for us to have peace in the midst of such uncertainty and brokenness in our world and that is that we are not only a chosen family but we are a triumphant kingdom. We are a triumphant kingdom. In fact, I think it's the second name, this, the name of David, that is intended to be most prominent among the genealogy here in uh, Matthew chapter 1. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's the first name that you come to once you're getting into the genealogy, even though 
David is certainly not the first in the order chronologically in the genealogy. It's the first name that's given even ahead of Abraham, even though the genealogy itself is intended to start with the generation of Abraham. And so this is shown that this is probably the name of most importance. He is primarily wanting us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the son of being the son of David, of the Davidic covenant. The second reason I say that is if you look down here at verse 17, you'll notice that there is a symmetry that is presented by the author, right? That this is all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation in Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. And who is the Christ? The Christ is the son of David, right? And so what we're seeing here, this is the royal lineage of Christ, the royal genealogy of Christ. Luke actually presents a maternal genealogy of Christ in his genealogy. So it's a different purpose, and it has different names on it, if you've ever wondered why those lists are different. But Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, is primarily presenting Jesus as being the son of David. And so he shows and he divides the generations according to this Davidic line. You go from Abraham to David, and then he starts over with David a second time. From David to the time of the exile in Babylon, and then he starts with Babylon, and he goes to Jesus the Christ, the Christ meaning the anointed one, the son of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic throne. And then there's a third reason, and this one, this one's a little bit blurrier, but the, the Hebrews, and you can read this by numerous, numerous uh, Hebrew writers from antiquity, they believed in a Hebrew numerology. In other words, if you go through the Hebrew alphabet, each letter of the alphabet, there's no, con- there's no vowels, there's only consonants. And each consonant in the Hebrew alphabet has a quantifiable number. Well, if you were to see David in the Hebrew alphabet, it would look like DWD, okay? Now, the value of D is 4, the, da- the value of W would be 6, and the value of D would be 4, or in other words, 14. And that would really explain why he chooses 14 generations over uh, and over, he, he, he mentions that three different times because, in fact, he skips over genealogies as the Hebrew genealogies are apt to do to highlight primarily what he's intending for you to see. And so the, you can see that there is, a, there is a method behind the madness as to why he would lay it out and give the symmetry in this way. And the whole intent is for us to see that we are supposed to understand Jesus as coming as the son of David, as the one to whom David had been promised. Now, just like we talked about with Abraham, any well-meaning Jew, and remember Matthew is written to the Jews, they read the name of David, and the first thought that comes into their mind is this covenant that has been made with David. This covenant that upon the Upon the the throne of uh, of David will endure forever. And upon that throne will be a king who will endure forever. But one of the purposes of this genealogy is to show that the covenant of Abraham and the covenant of of David are not independent of one another. They're not divorced from one another. In fact, there are simply one page, David, the Davidic covenant is one page later in the book of, in the uh, revelation of God's redemption than the Abrahamic covenant. Look at what I'm, what I'm talking about. I put the two covenants there, two of the premier sentences from the covenants there in, on the, the screen. And I want you to see, and if you squint 
a little bit, what you're able to see is that these aren't independent. Rather, they dovetail with one another. They, they, they really are able to, to, to overlap. And the Davidic covenant is building upon the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, so the Abrahamic covenant says, I will make you a great nation. Well, when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, what is Israel? Israel is not just a family anymore. Now Israel is quite literally a great nation, the superpower of their region of the world. All right, let's keep going. He says, I will bless you. Now, what did we say the word bless means? Does that mean you're going to be rich? Does that, does that mean that you're going to be able to say the Hilton or the Ritz-Carlton? Does that mean you're going to be driving a, a Rolls-Royce in a Bentley? Of course not. None of those things ever mean blessed in the Bible. What it means is, is that you are going to live in such a relationship with God that you have nothing left to fear. That's what it means to be blessed. That God is going to protect you. God is going to defend you. God is going to provide for you. God is going to provide you with his own presence in such a way that you have nothing else in all of the world to fear. And so he promises to Abraham this nation that's going to come up from your lineage is going to be a blessed nation. They're not going to have enemies to fear. They're not going to fear where their food is going to come from. They are going to be provided for because they are going to have my presence abiding with them. Now listen to what he says to David. I have been I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Do you see what he's saying? He's going back to the Abrahamic covenant and this covenant that he's making with David. And he's saying, I promised to, to Abraham that I would make him a nation. You're a nation. I promised him that nation would be blessed, that it would have nothing to fear because of my abiding presence with them. You have nothing to fear. I have given you triumph over all of your enemies. I have provided for you so that you have no concerns whatsoever. Your kingdom is expanding. You have peace on every side. No one dare stands against you because I, I stand there with you. You are, in fact, in other words, the fulfillment of the promise I made to Abraham. You are reaping what I promised because you are a blessed king ruling over a blessed nation with my presence. Now, listen to the nature of the covenant. Look at what he says to Abraham. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's what he says to Abraham. Now listen, just, just squint a little, all right? He says to David in the second part of verse 9 of 2 Samuel 7, And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on earth. You see it? In other words, God is up to the same work he's always been up to. God is up to the same work that he's always been up to, namely the redemption of the earth, the salvation of this people, and the advancement of his own glory in the creation. That's what he was up to at Abraham, and that's what he's up to in David. And these covenants over, uh, overlap and dovetail together by showing us in the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant what he intends to do, and now in the Davidic covenant how he intends to do it. That the Davidic covenant is really a clarification of the Abrahamic covenant. What is God going to do? God is going to raise up a nation, and through that nation, he's going to be a blessing to all families of the earth, to all nations, so that all peoples might be able to have this relationship with him, that they have nothing left to fear. How is he going to do it? He is going to do it by raising up this nation as a triumphant kingdom, reigned over by a triumphant king, and he is going to funnel his goodness and funnel his presence and funnel his promises 
through this king, his son, that will sit upon the throne and rule with goodness and grace and mercy and benevolence over the earth. Do you guys see a picture being painted for us here? And so the Davidic covenant is clarifying for us the nature of God's rule over the nations and what it's going to look like for us when Christ returns and rules over all the nations and us ruling with him and through the Son, all of the glory of God and all of the goodness of God and all of the grace of God and all of the mercy of God will be known in full manifestation. Now the problem with this was the problem that the shepherds would have had on that first century night up in the hills of Bethlehem is they looked up and they had this promise, but the throne was empty. They looked up and the throne of David had been abdicated. There is an Edomite sitting on the throne of David. It was an unthinkable. And he was in the pocket of Rome, the Gentiles. He was living at their behest. He was a wicked man, an abhorrent man. He was leading the people farther from God, not closer to God. And so they looked around at the brokenness of their world and the dire straits of their situation. And it seemed like a long time since David had made this promise. It, it, or God had made this promise to David. It had been a long time since they had ruled over. And y'all, that, that's not that unlike our day, is it? It's not unlike our day. We know what the promise is from Christ to us. And we know that Christ says that he's going to come and he's going to deliver us. But it seems like Christ said that a long time ago. And it seems like that's promise is never going to come true. We've heard all of these false predictions, and they would have heard all of these false predictions, and yet here we are languishing in the midst of this era, and we're thinking like, how in the world are we going to raise our kids here? How are we going to raise our kids in the midst of a generation in which you have to clarify the pronouns by which they're supposed to go by? How are we going to raise our kids in, which, in an era in which pornography is pursuing them and coming after them and looking for them? How are we going to raise them in an era in which, in which that which is evil has been normalized and celebrated? And it's easy for us as we look around our situation and to think, to think like they did, that the throne is empty. And because the throne is empty, maybe the promise is empty. You can imagine, you can imagine that these, these shepherds would have struggled with some doubt before the glory of the Lord interrupted their lives. And I imagine that for all of us, as we await the return of Christ, that we are struggling with some doubt as we await the glory of the Lord to interrupt the brokenness in which we live. Is that fair? But you see, the Davidic covenant was a covenant that was always supposed to be enjoyed by faith. It was a covenant that was always meant to be enjoyed not by sight, but by trust, by confidence. That you could enjoy what God had said because God had proven that what he said was the truth. That God had proven himself faithful. And because God had proven himself faithful, you could live even in the midst of an abdicated throne, even in the midst of profound brokenness and pervasive evil. You could live there even under the oppression of a wicked Gentile government. And you could live with joy and hope because you knew God was going to come through. You knew that God was trustworthy. You knew that God was dependable. See, that's the point of Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy. The point of the genealogy is that in Christ, their hope has become a fulfillment. Hope is something that you can't see, right? 
Hope is something that you long for, you, you, you're confident in, you, you desire, but you can't yet see it. Hope is, another, is, is a positive spin on the concept of faith and trust, right? And so we hope that we're going to see it. We hope that it's going to happen. We hope that David is going to come and ascend to his throne. We hope that God is going to come through on his promise. We have hope because God has said and God has promised and God in the past has done. And yet here in genealogy, in Matthew chapter 1, the hope becomes fulfillment. The hope becomes reality. Jesus didn't just poof onto the screen, you realize. Jesus was hoped for, longed for, trusted in, desired. And so you come in to this, and what we have in Matthew chapter 1 is now hope has been transformed into joy. Isn't that what joy is? Isn't joy the fulfillment of hope? You have hope, and you have faith, and you have trust, and you long, and you, and you desire to see the promise fulfilled, and you desire to see God come through. And you've experienced this in little doses in your life, haven't you, those of you who have walked with God for a long time. But then all of a sudden, there is a day in which, which it's like heaven breaks through, and that which you had hoped for becomes a reality. And in that moment, because it is a reality, hope is transformed by fulfillment into joy, the enjoyment of what God has given, the enjoyment of what God has done, the enjoyment of the reality that God's presence really is with me, that God really is for me. And so I would propose to you that the thrust of Matthew chapter 1 is why the Jews in the first century and why the Christians today ought to be the most joyful people on earth. Because in Matthew chapter 1, the throne is no longer empty. In Matthew chapter 1, the throne is no longer abdicated. In Matthew chapter 1, the promise is no longer uncertain. The promise has been upheld. The the throne has now been filled. The, The word has now been kept. Our hope has turned to joy. Let's, 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 let's zoom out for just a second so that you can see this. We looked at the Davidic covenant uh, a few weeks ago, but I want us to zoom in and see it in this specific light one more time. So if, if you remember what we talked about with the Davidic covenant, and we've talked about this a couple of times, and I want to make sure that we're, we're getting this because it, it, it's, it's kind of thick. I'll, I'll give you that. Like it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit complex if you're not used to these kinds of, uh, of ways of thinking. But we talked about these telescoping promises, didn't we? And do you remember what we said of telescoping promises? Do you, know, do you know what we mean by that? That means that when we read it the first time, it looks much shorter than it actually is, right? That in other words, that God gives a promise and it looks like it's going to be fulfilled very quickly. But it turns out that the intention of God and the intention of Scripture is to see that promise telescoped across generations so that it's actually going to be fulfilled over what is very often quite a very long time. That there is a fulfillment sometimes in the immediate, but in the immediate it is fulfilled, but not in totality. It is fulfilled, but it is not completely fulfilled. In other words, it's fulfilled in such a way that you can see that God is at work, but it's unfulfilled in such a way that you can see that God is still at work. Right? That God is still working. That God, God is in the midst of the process and God is upholding his word. But God hasn't ultimately brought it to completion. That God is working, but God is not yet finished that there is an immediate promise and there are an immediate fulfillment and then there is an ultimate fulfillment that these promises of God are intended to be understood as a dual fulfillment all right let's look at the promise that he makes the, the covenant that he makes with David so that we can see what I'm talking about and what I, I want you to stay with me because this is hope for us today verse 12 listen to what he says when your days he's this is talking about 
David, we'll use the Hebrew for fast, right? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up. That's resurrection language, right? i got to point that out. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. All right. Now, who's he talking about here? There is going to be a son of David that is going to come from David's body. He's going to be David's own flesh, David's own blood. And he's going to succeed David because remember what the promise is. The promise is that God is going to make David's name into a house. That is, he's going to make David as a king into a dynasty. A long reigning dynasty that is going to oversee his people. And he says that there is going to be a son from your flesh and from your bones that is going to sit upon that throne. Who is that? Solomon, right? Solomon. Remember, he's in Matthew chapter 1 too, right? Solomon, the, the daughter uh, or the, of uh, the wife of Uriah. So, so you have Solomon is going, and, and how can we know what is the sign that God is keeping his promise through Solomon, that the, that the covenant that he is making to David is passing down to Solomon? Well, the, the, the sign is going to be that he's going to build the temple. He's going to build a temple. So, so God would not allow David to build a temple, but he's going to enable with peace, with prosperity, with all of the riches that are necessary, with the skilled labor that is needed. He is going to enable, even through the Holy Spirit, if you read the account, Solomon, the ability to be able to build this temple. And when you see that, your thought is going to be, God is upkeeping the promise. God is fulfilling the covenant. But, 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 even though we're able to see that God is fulfilling the promise, and then we're assured of that promise through the raising of the temple, there are hints in there that Solomon's not going to be able to fulfill this thing. Solomon's going to be the fulfillment, but Solomon's not going to be the fulfillment. So- Solomon's going to fulfill it in the immediate, but it's, he's still going to leave a lot to be desired in the long term. In fact, the kingdom is going to splinter as a result of Solomon's sin. But listen to what it says in verse 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, again, that sounds like Solomon, but it also sounds like somebody else. I, who, he becomes iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever before me. So now look, verse 13 he says this is going to last forever. Verse 16, two more times, he says it's going to be forever. This throne is going to be established forever. The son of David is going to sit upon the throne of, of David forever. Does Solomon sit upon the throne forever? No. Can Solomon sit upon the throne forever? No. He's a sinful, wretched dude that does a lot of sinful, wretched stuff. Solomon cannot uphold this promise. And so that's what they're longing for in the first century. Herod's reigning, Rome's oppressing, taxes are are burdening. What do we need? What do we need? We need the king who will reign forever. We need the son of David who will live upon the throne forever. We need the one through whom the promises will come and the promises will be channeled. We know that God worked then. We know that God was at work through Solomon. We know that he gave the sign of the temple. But we need God now. Born to the Virgin Mary is the Christ, the son of David. Good news of great joy. 
there is hope. The promise has been kept. It, is being fu- it was fulfilled in the immediacy by Solomon, but then filled in totality by Christ. And so here's, here's the way I want you to think. Joy was promised to David. Joy was assured in Solomon, but then joy was completed in Christ. Joy was promised to David. Joy was assured through Solomon and his temple. And then joy was completed in Christ, the ultimate son of David. Now, what's the relevancy of that to us today? Some of y'all are looking at me and you're like, I have no idea, dude. Like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now, man. The relevancy is, is that we're in the same spot that they were in. You and I today in the 21st century living in the postmodern world here in America are living in the middle of a telescoping promise. We are living in the middle of a word that God has done but God has not finished doing. We are living in that which was already completed in Christ but is not yet completely finished by Christ. Here's what I mean. They were living between two kingdoms, right? They were living between the Davidic kingdom that was and the Davidic kingdom that was to come. They were living there in the silence of God. It it had been a long time since they had heard a word from the Lord. It had been a long time since they had seen the fulfillment of a promise from the Lord. It had been a long time. And there they are, caught right in the middle until, until Jesus came. Until Jesus came. And do you remember, what was the message of John the Baptist and Jesus at the beginning of the ministry? Do you remember The kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. All of your waiting is over. All of the waiting that you've been wanting to see, all the hopes that you've had have been fulfilled. Your joy, the day of your joy is right now. Well, you and I, just like they were living between two kingdoms, we're living between two worlds. We're living between two worlds. On one side of us is a world that is decaying and rotting. The foundation seems shaky. The, the, uh, Romans in chapter 8 says that it is groaning with great groans. The futility of the creation under the weight of the curse. But Jesus has promised that there is another world coming. Jesus has promised that there is a world coming in which there's no more tears. Jesus has promised there is a world coming in which the only thing that you and I will know is joy and contentment and peace and satisfaction. He has promised that there is a world coming in which there will be no death and there will be no decay and there will be none of this other nonsense. All of this will fade away and the whole world will be made new. And what's the hope that we have? What's the hope that we have? So, So, you see, Jesus has promised us joy, right? But Jesus hasn't just promised us joy. Jesus has assured us joy. How did David, how did God assure Israel that he was going to upkeep his promise to David? This is cool. Y'all stay with me, right? I think you're going to like this. How did God assure him? He assured him by sending a son of David who would raise up a temple, right? You remember that? What assurance do we have, brothers and sisters? Do you remember the words of Jesus when he said, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The new temple is Christ who finished his work on the cross 
paying for my redemption and your redemption, dividing the, the curtain and the temple, dividing the Holy of Holies from the top to the bottom. And there on that cross, his temple, the temple, our hope died and was destroyed. Oh, but brothers and sisters, he was the son of David that did not stay down in the dirt, did not stay in the middle of the earth, but he was the temple that was raised up. So what's the hope that we have? The hope that we have is that in the immediate, God has proven to us that he is still at work by overcoming death, by overcoming all the threats, by proving to us that he has power over the brokenness that you and I now face, over all of the excruciating experiences that you and I now know. He was raised as the temple, as a sign to us that not only has our joy been promised, but our joy through his work has been secured and our joy in him one day when he returns will be ultimately complete. This is the best way I know to illustrate this. Back a few weeks ago, we were on a vacation uh, in, uh, in October and we went down to Tampa to see some family or whatever and we really had not planned on doing this, but we realized that our, the campsite that we were staying in was really halfway between Tampa and Orlando. So we were only an hour away from Orlando. And Sarah is at that age where, like, princesses are actually, like, the whole world. You know what I mean? Like, she, she thinks that they're real and they're legitimate. And, like all the, and so we thought before she gets older than this, like, we want her to see all the Disney princesses. Like, it's not a have to. It was a want to. We just, and so we decided, Megan and I, that we were going to surprise our kids with an unexpected trip to Disney World. Like, I think in, in like, the kid economy of childhood, that's, a, that's as good as it gets right there. You know what I'm saying? Oh, that's as good as it gets. And so we, we bring them all in, into our bedroom, and we tell them, you know, tomorrow we're going to get really early, and we're, we're going to go to Disney World. And they're like, no, stop, Dad. See, I mess with them a lot. Um, <laughs> I think God gave us kids to have fun with. You know what I'm saying? I think God gave us kids to have fun with. So I mess with them a lot, and I, I guess I have a yes, BS, no, be no kind of problem or something in my house. Um, because they're like, no, 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 we're not, no, we're not. You said we're not, you know. And I said, oh, yeah, we are. Let me show you how I can prove it. And I brought it over to my phone, and I showed them the receipt. I showed them the receipt. I had digital t tickets right there for them to see. They couldn't see Mickey yet. They couldn't see Space Mountain yet. They couldn't see the Magic Kingdom yet or the Animal Kingdom yet. They couldn't see Cinderella's Castle yet. They weren't going down Splash Mountain yet. But what they had is they had the receipt. And every time they would start to doubt me, every time they would think it wasn't, we weren't ever going to go, you know what I'd do? I'd show them the receipt again. And you know what would happen? It would renew their joy. It would renew their hope. In fact, in fact, they were as happy knowing they were going to go as they were when they actually got there. You know what Matthew chapter 1 is? It's a receipt. Do you know what the resurrection was? The raising of the temple? It was our receipt. It was our temple. Our ticket. It was the proof that the kingdom that he has promised is going to come will actually come. It was the assurance. And so that, that is what you tell the anger that is on Facebook. I've got my ticket. That is what you tell when the budget does not, bear, does not balance. I've got my ticket. 
That's what you tell yourself when your marriage is crumbling. I've got my ticket. That's what you tell yourself when you have cancer and you don't know what you're going to do. I've got my ticket. It is assured to me that the promises of God and the word of God will be upheld. And he has promised to me. He has secured for me a joy that will last forever. A joy that will be uninterrupted. He has overcome my brokenness. He has overcome my pain. And I, I have the receipt. Oh, brothers and sisters, this morning, this morning, my encouragement to you, my encouragement to you as you celebrate the birth of that little baby is hold on to your receipt. Hold on to your receipt this holiday season because, because that baby, he is coming again and he is coming on a white horse and he is going to raise all of the dead in him and you will reign with him in peace, in joy, in eternity forever. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.